This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. This week, I'm very excited to bring you a bit of a special feature. Second Story is currently in its 21st season, and last year we celebrated two decades of storytelling with a month-long festival. Today, I'm bringing you the full recording of one of our favorite events from the festival. I invite you to join our artistic director, Amanda Delheimer, and company member, Megan Steelstra, as they tell the story of Second Story. Recorded live in Chicago in April 2019, Second Story is proud to present Quiche and Tell. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, it's a little, so just so you know, we are recording this so that if we wanted to turn into a podcast, we can. So there's not any amplification. If you're like, she's talking into a microphone and it's not amplified, uh, that's on purpose. Uh, the cords just are going into a little recorder um, in the back, but it does feel a little bit strange to be talking into a microphone with no amplification. Just to acknowledge that. Amanda spent like a decade trying to teach me how to project. So I, I feel like, uh, like, I feel like I should project. be able to speak to people that are just this far away from me without well, a microphone in my face. That is the job. Yeah, I know. Because it's not going to it's you, not gonna amplify you. I know. You. You, you worked really hard on me. So um, so thank you for being here. My name's Amanda Delheimer. Um, I'm the artistic director of Second Story. This is my colleague and dear friend, Megan Steelstra. Hello. Uh, one of our company members, um, also a very famous author and whatnot. Mm. Um, and uh, the goal today is to talk a little bit about the origins of Second Story. So um, I'm pretty sure that maybe everybody has been to a Second Story show, although no, we have one shaking head. Ooh, great. Um, hi, mm. I'm Amanda. Tell me your name. Hi, Kim. Um, so uh, I'll do the 15-second version of what Second Story is then, and then we'll talk a little bit about the origins. Um, so Second Story, we're a storytelling organization. We were founded 20 years ago. Actually, our birthday was on Tuesday, uh, April 2nd. So we're like 20 years and four days old or something like that. Um, and uh, we believe that storytelling is a thing that ties people together. So we create spaces where people can uh, share and listen to real-life personal stories. Uh, and we weren't founded that way. We were founded as a theater company actually uh, and produced exclusively new plays for the first um, couple three years and then about three years in um, the organization started to they did this one-off like mm. oh we need to make some money for the theater company let's do some storytelling in a bar and it went really well uh, and they were like hey let's do that again um, and so uh, I happened to be in the audience of the first one because uh, my friend was DJing and he was like, hey, could you carry my sound equipment? You have a car. And I was like, <laughs> I guess. Um, and so uh, and I happened to know one of the folks who was organizing it and the chaos ensued from there. But um, so we have kind of a long and storied history. But um, um, that wasn't even intentional. Um, but uh, uh, so the goal of today is just to talk a little bit about kind of how our particular process and form came to be. Um, so I wanted to start by asking Megan to talk quickly about how you mm -hmm. first came to work mm -hmm. with Second Story as an organization. Mm -hmm. It was called Serendipity then. So if you hear us say Serendipity, uh, it's because that was the original mm -hmm. name of the organization. It's actually technically still our legal name, but we're not going to pay attention to that. So <laughs> how did you first come? I, I just, I, I love, like, think, trying to imagine us 20 years ago. Just to, to take a sec, like you can see Amanda and I sitting here now, but please imagine us 20 years ago. <laughs> A plus, Aww, Trisha. you win the quiche. 
Um, sidebar, I, I said on Twitter that I was going to get drunk and talk about nonprofits with quiche on Saturday morning. And that apparently there is a national quiche marketing society that started <laughs> retweeting me and like tweeting at me like, yay, quiche. And so just this world, this world. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> my story is, it's, it, and how I got involved is, is kind of s similar to Amanda's in the, the carry the sound equipment. So I was, um, I was, uh, <laughs> I was in graduate school for creative writing, uh, and uh, a buddy of mine and I were trying to start a reading series. His name is Joe Mino. He's a novelist here in Chicago, and you know, like two or three people would come because you know, reading. Because uh, you uh, had friends. Because we had friends, and yeah, that's that's true. Or you know, people we were getting down with, probably more appropriately, <laughs> and um, uh, and so we were kind of talking about the difference of people who were showing out to a reading. And the hundreds of people that would show up to the um, the punk rock shows that Joe was doing at uh, the Fireside Bowl, and so we so we started kind of messing around with connecting storytelling with music in different ways. We started doing all these shows at the Subterranean. Uh, I wrote a story that I did with a, a musical theater guy here in Chicago about um, a, about a guy who stood underneath my window and sang Bon Jovi songs every night for a hundred nights. Oh. Yeah, which um, was. Real or fiction? Uh, he, th the real one was he got drunk and sang me the song in a bar. The fiction was he showed up at my house and did it multiple nights. A hundred. This, this, right. But, yeah. but oh, and see, okay, totally and, and see, creepy, already, right? like, like Jim is doing that. Like, is it really that different? And then Amanda's like, we are going to talk about truth and storytelling and <laughs> how that affected Amanda's <laughs> origin story in, in just a minute. Anyway, so this guy and I did this show, and... Um, his college roommate is the now husband of Adam Belcour, who's one of the founding members of Serendipity. Currently and the casting director at, at the, the Goodman, Goodman Theater. And maybe has a new title that I don't remember. Yeah. Sorry, Adam. But he was kind of the brain. He, he was the, the, the person who said, hey, let's try a storytelling series in the bar, right? So he saw me do the show. He came up to me after and asked if I wanted to come tell a story at this thing that he was doing at a wine bar. I said, sure. Um, and uh, I went to see the event before I did the event, which is very smart for anyone who is interested in, in being a, but you'd be surprised at the amount of people who just want to come do a thing without knowing what the thing is. Um, and it, it was, at the time we were in the, the second floor of Webster's Wine Bar, um, the, the old one, which is across the street from the Webster Street Cinemas, and it's, um, it has a second floor space. And so, the second floor space is L-shaped, and the way that the series was was done in those kind of th those original years was um, wherever you were seated in the audience in the wine bar, you could hear the storyteller, but you couldn't necessarily see them, right? So, um, which is partially because we had multiple storytelling positions, like knowing that the bar was an L, we set up three different places where people would tell from. So, like you might be able to see the first one, but not the second one, or see the third, not the fourth, etc. Right. And I, I remember being like sitting there with my wine and just being blown. I'd never seen anything like that, like something that intimate, right? Like uh, people were sitting the way that we're all sitting right now and uh, sitting and drinking and connecting. And you were sitting next to strangers. The room was always packed. Uh, we very much blew fire code all of the time and got into a lot of trouble. We had storytellers sitting on the bars and standing on the bars and people sitting on the floor and... Um, and so, but I remember the, the first time I went, I was listening. I couldn't see the storyteller. And one of the things that I heard was, um, 
And then I was all, and then the audience laughed. And then he was all, and the audience laughed. So you knew the actor was doing a gesture or a facial expression or something that was making this laughter happen. But where I was located, I couldn't see it. Uh, so afterwards, Adam asked me what I thought. And I said, I, I think this is amazing. I'm absolutely in, absolutely in love with it. I, I think maybe you need some, like some writing coaches or something because there, there's things you can do in the text that won't um, exclude portions of your audience. That you can describe those facial expressions. You, you can make sure that the text gives all the necessary information. And Adam said, great, do you want a job? Uh, I, I, was in, I was in graduate school in creative writing with a specialization in, in arts education and teaching writing. And, and I said, what does it pay? And he said, it doesn't pay anything at all. And I said, great. Um, <laughs> uh, which in Chicago is a thing that you can do. Uh, I, I don't know if we could have done Second Story the way that we did it um, if we'd been in another city, right? I, I could make money tending bar. I could pay off my loans tending bar. And I could try this kind of artistic experiment and see where it went. Um, and that was when he hooked me up with you. Yeah. And so one thing to note is that in that day, we did we were doing a festival, but it was like once a month for seven months. And so I think you came to a show that we were doing like in October and then coming back and performing in April or something right. like that. Right. All right. So tell them the thing you always say about when you email. Right. Me. Right. So he. Um, so she's like, OK, yes, I'll do this. Right. Great. I'll see you in April. Right. And then he at, at that point, Amanda was already kind of running the kind of running the show. And so he he had her schedule me. And again, I was coming from the a literary background. And, and from that background, you show up and you do your thing and you leave. Right? The, the, there is no, like, the, I did not speak theater. I did not know what a rehearsal was. Mm -hmm. I did, like, there there was no script. Like, you had, you had a text, but you didn't, so so all of this was very foreign to me. So anyway, so I'm sent the date that I'm going to perform, and then I get an email saying, yeah, and, and please send me a, a draft of your piece. At that point, I didn't even know what I was going to do. You know, I was going to write it the week before and show up and do it. And I wrote back, and I, I said, oh, n no, I, I'm just going to show up and read. <laughs> and Amanda wrote back and was like, no, I need your draft. And this was like two months in advance. <laughs> And she was like, no, I, I, need you, I need your draft right, right now. And I was like, I, I don't know who you think I am. I mean, I, 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 mean I, obviously <laughs> I didn't say that because my father taught me to be kind. But, but like, I, I, didn't, I didn't speak the language. And I didn't, know, like, I, I, I didn't know if she knew that Adam had invited me. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't know, know what was, I don't know if I sent you anything at all. Well, so on my, and on my end, I'm like, who is this woman? Like, could you please send me your text already? Because um, we're trying to figure out running order and who's going when. And at this time, um, so meanwhile, I had been working with a small group of mostly actors. Because uh, at the time, Serendipity Theater Company was like, oh, great. So we'll use company members and other folks that we know who were mostly actors um, to work on this um, storytelling thing. We didn't really know. We, we didn't know what we were doing theater. either. They we all did. We spoke, spoke a lot theater. of theater. 
And so we would meet and and very similar to how we work now where we'd read each other's stories and ask each other questions, but without any of the literary um, training that we have now, which is the next the next step, the next phase of this is when mm-hmm. Megan and I worked together. It was great. Yeah. Um, and but uh, at the beginning, it was very much like, who are you? Yeah. What? At the beginning, I was mm-hmm. like, could you please just send me the goddamn thing? <laughs> I need to figure out who's going in what order because I don't know who you are. I don't know what the story is. And we had so we had like three actors who were telling personal stories um, with a little side of fiction. And then we had special guests. Right. So Megan was a special guest on April 7th or whatever. Um, and I needed to figure out the running order. But eventually, mm-hmm. um, she sent me the text, and we figured, and it was great. Uh, and uh, the next step of it was that Adam was like, that, that do you want a job thing. He was like, I think the two of you should work together to kind mm-hmm. of, um, Amanda, you bring in the theater stuff, and Megan can bring in the literary stuff, and we can address some of these challenges that Megan had identified, right? That we hadn't, re- as actors, or theater people, I don't, don't identify as an actor, but we hadn't really thought about, um, oh right! If somebody can't see you, you need to use the text in order to support what the story is that you're telling. Because there are some things that if I can't see it, my f- gesture, my facial expression uh, doesn't help you to understand the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent the next 15 years, yeah, yeah, um, trying to trying to figure out how to braid these two things mm-hmm. together. And a, a lot of it was at the beginning was just vocabulary. Um, and oh figuring yeah, out the, the right show, way. Tell thing. Yeah, it, it, um, there was a moment where uh, Amanda was w- working with uh, one of the writers that I brought in. So I, I, I you know, I was in gra- I, I had all, th- I had all these writing people, and I had all these theater people. So we, so we just kind of very Reese's peanut butter cups. Yep. And uh, so she was working with one of the the writers, and she was trying to explain to him. Okay, let me see if I can remember this because I was young back then, and this is this was before I had a child, and right, I, Trisha? I mean, I there, I did a lot of bad things with my brain cells in the past twenty years. So, so, there, so I think things have just shot right, shot right out of it. Um, so she was trying to explain. So, say in a story, there are there's a forward moving scene. There might be multiple flashbacks. Um, so she was trying to explain that in the performance, can there be different pacing? between these different things, right? So, so, so can we use pacing in a way to differentiate when we're in a flashback, when we're moving forward? Um, and because he was delivering it all in the same very dry tone. Because again, if you come from the literary world, you're often trained to read dry. We called it the Columbia Death March. <laughs> yeah. um, we um, did, literally. Because they would, they would have their text and it would be like, I was walking down the street and I saw this person and they were bleeding on the ground and it was terrible. Yeah. Okay. And, the, and the training is that the text is supposed to do the work, right? right? Because so often when you're in the development of writing, you'll hear people read their work and they'll perform it in a way that overcompensates for the fact that it doesn't exist on the page, right? Um, so, so if I'm being super excited in my performance of this text, I, I need to figure out how to put that into the rewrite. And, and as a writer right now, like when I'm making books, that's a thing that I think about all the time. Like how do I craft this in the same way that I would speak it out loud? And there's a ton of study and research that's gone into that. Like I can sit here and I can geek out about Hubert Selby and Margaret Atwood and different ways that they do that in the, um, uh, with punctuation and M dashes and italics and, uh, and uh, anyway, um, the, 
but but it, we would have infinite conversations about pacing and how you can control that in the tech. Can I geek out for like three, two minutes? Can yes. I geek out for two minutes? Okay. Okay. So the example that I was thinking about is, okay, so there's Faulkner and there's Hubert Selby. Hubert Selby will go nine pages without a period and it reads like lightning, like do 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 You read Faulkner, will also go nine pages without a period and it reads so slow. I'm seeing nodding from people who are like, I also know my Faulkner. I remember my <laughs> Faulkner, Megan. And, and so it, it can't just be lack of punctuation that makes the speed happen, right? So you look quick, you, you know, you look a little closer. Selby doesn't use um, adjectives or adverbs, right? So it's all verb. It's all like hot action words moving. You read Faulkner, there are three, four, five adverbs or adjectives before every verb or noun, right? So it's the, the rickety, wooden, splintered wagon wheel. And sometimes when he really wants you to slow down, he puts an and between. So the splintery and wooden and rickety wagon wheel. <laughs> so then you're super slow, right? And one isn't better than the other. They're both tools. And oh my God, th that just amazes me within a text. He's been dead for a gazillion years and he controls how we read. It blow, I want to be. I want to be able to do that, right? Um, so anyway, that's something that we'll look at when we're studying literary craft, um, like something that's meant to be consumed on the page, right? And so when you're when you're studying theater and performance, um, all of that variety needs to come in in intentional ways in the performance, right? Um, how does it contribute to the meaning of the work or? your beats and your operatives, and see now all the language that I know, right? Um, I've been trained, thank you. Uh, but so, so Amanda's trying to convey this to this writer that she's working with. He's not getting it. She's, but like, I can see that she's getting frustrated, because at that point you were like, okay, wait, let me come at this a different way. Okay, what if I come at it from this way? And you came at it from like 17 ways. Thank and then you. finally I was like, Jeff, she means the, the Selby Faulkner thing. And then he was like, oh, okay, great. And then we were we were done. But it, it, it that moment I think taught Amanda and I a great deal about needing to find common vocabulary between the not only these two kind of enormous exciting fields of theater and writing, but um, the particular ways between the the ways that our communities have been trained and taught in them, and how do we find those similarities? Yeah. And we would have, um, like, there was one particular argument that sticks in my brain about the word show. So in theater, mm. it is the death of the actor to show you what they are feeling, right? It, it's very overbearing and melodramatic and um, something that would be like, please stop showing me, just be in the moment. Whereas Megan would be like, no, show it to me, show it to me. And I'm like, please stop saying that. Uh -huh. um, because what she means is I need it on the page. Like I need to see the, I need to see the texture of the skin, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so we would have these like long, heated, like drunken, uh, drunken, mostly drunken um, conversations. We were in one another's living rooms a lot. We both had keys to one another's apartments. That's true. We would show up and like th this was the ongoing debate. Like when I think of my 20s, it was how am I going to discuss literature and uh, theater with Amanda and who am I going to have sex with? Like those <laughs> were the two, those were the two goals. I think of my twenties. I think I accomplished both of those things. Excellent work. Thanks. Um, and uh, so fast forward a few years, uh, and one of the I think really core 
um, moments that Second Story had, in addition to, like, the organization had the moment of, like, okay, so we're not going to... Making plays is really awesome. We really love it. And also, that's not necessarily what this organization is uniquely poised to do. So we made a decision about 2007 um, to stop doing plays and just focus on storytelling, which is a great decision. Uh, and those of us who still, like, I still make plays in other places because I love making plays. Um, but that's not really what Second Story is poised to do in this particular moment, and certainly at that moment. Um, but one of the core conversations that we ended up having um, probably like three, four years later, I think also in 2006, 2007, was this idea of um, like, what is truth? <laughs> um, and specifically, um, like, what does what does truth mean to Second Story and our particular form? So when Megan first began and when Second Story first began, there were some stories that were personal narratives, so real stories told by the person who lived them. There were some stories that were just straight-up fiction. Um, and then there were some stories, like the Bon Jovi story is a good example, mm -hmm. that kind of lived in this hybrid space if they were inspired by a true event, um, but the actual the things, the plot of it did not happen the way that um, was captured in the story that we were telling. Uh, and I remember there was a company meeting, or actually it was a, a story, uh, a, what we called a BAM, the big ass meeting. So we, for a while we did this um, storyteller cycle where the groups were in um, like groups of like four or five storytellers with a curator who would meet um, by bi-weekly and then once a month we had those were the small ass meetings Sam's. and then the Sam's Sam. and then we had um, BAMs the big ass meetings where everybody came together it was so point, good in theory <laughs> well, actually as a system it worked well the nomenclature was not right our managing director at the time called me at some point this was before before Lauren who I love um, our managing director called me at the time and she was like um, could we please have some acronyms that don't have swear words in them? I was just on the phone with the funder and I was trying to explain to them what our acronyms stand for and I couldn't, and I was like, sorry, Julie. Anyways, so at one of the BAMs, one of the big ass meetings, uh, we, it came out that somebody, a couple folks didn't realize that some of the stories were not true, right? Uh, and so we had this huge conversation about like, what is truth? And <laughs> Megan's shaking her head. No, I just I, I so I write memoir now, right? So it, it, like it, that is that is the number one question that like I I, I feel like the, the, we have this, not answered this question, this but we made a choice for a second story. That we made a choice for a second story, but I mean it's it is a it is a it's a it's a it's a huge question, and so it it depends on the context. Yeah, anyway, but so. the so the big turning point for us was there was a story. Um, that Deb Lewis told called I Hate Strawberries. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it was a story that Megan curated as a part of our collaboration with Story Week, uh, mm -hmm. which was a program that the fiction writing department at Columbia College, RIP, um, ran every year. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is the, the Story Week ran for 10 years. It was the largest um, literary festival in the Midwest. It was amazing. So it was in, like, there would be shows at um, the Metro and shows at Martyrs and at Buddy Guys and, and they really tried to get literature out of um, just a space of of a library and, and reading and, and really kind of into into other spaces and other communities in the city, which was really lovely and I, I miss it very much. But the um, every year had a different theme and the particular theme this year uh, was writing from the edge. 
And so I thought uh, one of our company members, Deb Lewis, who sidebar, even separately from Second Story, I, I think she's the she's the best writer in the city. If anyone has the opportunity to see her perform, I can't. She's telling a week from tomorrow at Martyrs. Oh, good. That was a great. Did you see her do that? See, I know. That's that's why DVRs exist. I'm I'm performing that night too, and I not know, I didn't know story. that before I signed. But it's gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. We can go watch it on my phone in the green room. We can go watch it on my phone in the green room. We can. Like, if you want me and you, if you want to come. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Segue. Segue. Um, so I and Deb also writes a great deal about uh, being involved in the BDSM community in in Chicago. Uh, she has a great story. Is she telling this one? She's telling Granny's Leathers. About, about uh, yeah, about having... The story is called Granny's Leathers. I mean, come on. It's Don't you want to like hear that story? power dom in the, in the city. I mean, she her, wor- her work is incredible. Her work is incredible. So I, I called her and I was like, hey, I'm doing this writing from the Edge show and it, it makes sense to me that you'd come in and, and do some of the, the BDSM stuff. And she, and she, I will never forget this. She said... Well, sure, I'll totally do it, but BDSM isn't my edge. BDSM is like Tuesday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And she said, I mean, if you want me to write for my edge, you got to let me write for my edge. <laughs> right? And it's it's funny, but also, like, I, I, ju- I, I can still hear her voice saying that. And it, it really, it, it's made me. This is back when we used to call each other. <laughs> they were not text messages. It's true. It, it, it's true. <laughs> um, but it, it, just e- even like I, I, I think of her saying that all of the time. Whenever I ap- approach work from a particular theme, my last book is all personal essays about fear. So just even sitting and thinking, God, what really, it, what really is that? Like, what does it really mean to be afraid of something? What does it really mean to to push ourselves to the edge? Right? Like, it's very easy. I think. Um, just to, to, you know, we popcorn ideas all the time. Like, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Da, 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 da. But to really push into the, the meaning of what we're trying to accomplish here, sh- uh, um, I will take that lesson all of the time. That's when we, we um, dance. <coughs> we do. We do. You're a great dancer. So, thank you. Okay, so <laughs> do you want to tag from there? No. You want me to just keep it's it moving? Yeah. Okay. Um, so then two weeks later, she sent me a, this story. Uh, called I Hate Strawberries and it is about um, it is about incest and that is one of those conversations that an audience immediately shuts down with like you, we even hear that word and people go la 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 don't, don't want to talk about that and I think we can say that with so many heavy topics right sexual assault mental health violence um, these are all conversations that we need to be having in, in this in this country in this city in particular you know I've been touring books for a while and there's a very definite single story about our city uh, nationally right now. Like They talk about our violence but not our joy. They talk about our violence but not how organizers and activists are fighting it. They talk about our violence but not I- the divested uh, communities. its origins. Um, so t- to really, uh, this is one of the great superpowers I think of Second Story and, and what can it accomplish is how do we take some of these things that we need to be talking about and present th- and give the work in such a way that it makes it accessible for a dialogue. So Deb, Deb. wrote this story called "I Hate Strawberries," and I remember she was she talked about it's about um, being sexually abused by her grandfather, uh, and 
the she said I want to make people um, laugh and then I want to make them feel bad for laughing and then I want to make them cry and I want to make them feel okay about crying uh, and we were like great go for it um, and mm-hmm. the room in the the air in that room that night it was also at Martyrs where we'll be performing in a week from tomorrow uh, and it was, it's a huge space. It's this kind of old grungy rock and roll space. There's probably 300, 350 people in there. Mm-hmm. And you could hear a pin drop while Deb was telling this story. Like the bartender stopped moving. Like it. The bartender stopped moving. Um, and afterwards, and it's a beautiful, heartbreaking story. Um, afterwards, she leaves the stage and person after person after person. She kept mobbed. Wa- mob, mobbing, mobbed her. Yeah, with this, like, I can't believe, um, thank you so much for telling that story. The same thing happened to me. It was so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and she says, like, I was, when she's, so she's performing in a week from tomorrow. And um, when we were talking, I was like, well, do you want to perform I Hate Strawberries? Um, or do you want to perform, um, granny's leathers kind of Mm -hmm. she's got 1700 wonderful stories but those Mm -hmm. are kind of her two most iconic uh and she was talking to me about her experience of performing that story and kind of that it felt very much almost like an exorcism um in a way and uh that she kind of like she didn't expect the kind of response that she got and she felt kind of like she was walking through the eye of a hurricane all night so fast forward a couple of weeks and we're in this bam Mm -hmm. big meeting uh, and realize that it would have broken the contract with the audience had somebody walked up to her afterwards and said, oh, that happened to me too. And she's like, oh, that was fiction. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, can you make it? Like, Gina's <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that face of like, oh, shit. Right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, God, yeah. And we realize like, okay, so then if that's the contract for that story, it has to be the contract for every mm-hmm. story. The second story does. That was the first, in, in that kind of, moment when we were discussing it after that was the first time I heard Amanda use the phrase the contract with the audience and it felt like we'd been running in circles for years trying to define what we did but as soon as she said that it was like that that's it that that's the language right there and I think finding the language has always been I mean that's been the work on multiple levels like straight up how do you find the language for the story but even the, the elevator pitch that Amanda gave you at the very beginning of this little chat about what second story is it took 20 years to get to that succinct language of of what we do right um but the contract with the audience i think that has been vital in second story but just uh, across the board in in thinking about what we do and yeah and what we make so the current our current our definition of truth mm-hmm. is we actually use the word real much mm-hmm. more than we do the word true just because that like eternal like what is truth debate like I just have no interest in that really mm-hmm. um, I mean I do obviously but sometimes it's like god stop what is it um splitting hairs mm-hmm. um but is that idea of can somebody walk up to the teller afterwards and say oh that happened to me too mm-hmm. right that's that is our litmus test mm-hmm. because some stuff like oh I have seven brothers but I'm just I'm going to compress them all into two. That might not be essential to the story, right? If the story is about something totally unrelated to my brothers, they just happen to appear there. If somebody says, oh, that happened to me too, that has nothing to do with my brothers, right? That has to do with the forward moving action of the story. Um, But that's really our litmus test now is can somebody walk up to the teller afterwards? Because you do have that access to the storytellers in this space to be able to walk up to them afterwards and say, oh my God, that happened to me too. Mm -hmm. Um, Or what you just shared really touched me. Um, So that is our current litmus test Mm -hmm. 
And then we have one more thing that we wanted to talk about, and then we're going to wrap. Amanda uh, started taking psychology classes like five or six years into um, into the building of Second Story. And there was a, a, a long period of time where every single thing she said was preceded by, well, in my psychology class, <laughs> I learned that. That's um, exaggeration for effect. <laughs> <laughs> Which It wasn't everything I said. It was very common. I did say that a lot. It was... See, this is the splitting hairs sort, sort of a thing. Because which is the better story? Which uh, to, to hear every single which time. Which is Am- true. Every single time Amanda spoke, she would say, because I, I think like the, there is a natural <laughs> sense of exaggeration when you're telling a story out loud, right? There is a, uh, we add 10 feet that the hero had to jump, right? Like I'm not going to say to you all, y'all, I went to a party last night. There were two people there. I had half a glass of Chardonnay. It was great. <laughs> No, I'm going to say there were a thousand people there. I wound up naked in the pool. It was fantastic. Right? Like, I, right, like how do we... Um, oh, that happened to me too. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, so anyway, so... But, but I, I, I say that jokingly about a man in the psychology class, but I, I think really her study of psychology has really infused the work that, that we do and, and, and philosophically how we make these connections between... Um, storyteller and a listener uh that's affected how i view uh, writing and reading and that relationship um and i think especially kind of in our in our we we are living in in very complicated times right now and to to think again psychologically about about how the relationship of teller and listener um is happening or in many cases not I, i i think it's important so yeah, and it also, a lot of that underpins some of the way that we think about the utility of storytelling. So not just that connection piece, but um, the way that stories can open up conversations um, or the way that being in mm. space with each other and sharing stories with each other can be healing. Uh, you were talking earlier about, Megan. so Megan's been on this book tour, um, spent a lot of 2018 on the road. Yeah, I was in, um, I was in Sanibel Island the week Irma Hurricane Irma hit. I was in St. Louis the day after the cop who killed Mike Brown got off. Uh, I was um, in Las Vegas three days after the shooting. I was working with 500 middle school students two days after Parkland happened. And in all of these spaces, um, it was the, you know, an, on, the, on the page we call it an essay, right? So we're we're calling it a story for performance and we, we can get into the linguistic conversation of that as well too but in all these places it was the 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 story the essay that let us get into the conversations that that particular community really needed to get into um and i am not part of the day-to-day administration of second story any longer um but the work that we do has affected every single aspect of my life, how I write, how I teach, how I parent, how I travel, how I vote, um, certainly. Uh, but but just th- that, ab- that ability for connection and speaking and listening. Yeah. Good job, high five. High five. Thanks. Um, oh, <laughs> yay. Um, so, so we did, if there, we don't want to do a little, like, if you all have questions that we could speak to yeah. for a second. We, we literally made a list of everything that we wanted to talk about of 20 years working with Second Story, and then we just picked three of them. <laughs> so uh, just for the sake of time and 
So please, if there's things that we can do And then also we're going to break and eat more quiche. And now I get to have a mimosa. Yes. Uh, um, it, it was living on a prayer, right? Yes. Oh, the do 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 do. Don used to work on the dock. Did you? That's halfway there. Living on a prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that would be it, a really. It was less. It was less to get me back and more to get me, just, <laughs> for the night. I think. Um, I, I think. Was it successful? No, because he was gross. <laughs> Fair. Um, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe he's not anymore. I don't know. I mean, it's been a couple decades. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a great question. All right, I'm going to repeat that just because we're recording for our podcast. So the question of um, we consider what the storyteller's edge is, do we consider what the audience's edge might be? Um, I would say yes and no, right? So there's a little bit, we don't necessarily know who's going to be in the audience. Uh, And we've made a couple of conscious decisions around... um, We don't tend to do trigger warnings, for example, Um, although we do make a very um, specific mention of if you need to leave the space for any moment or for any reason at any moment, here are the exits, um, which um, per our research and understanding is indicator language for folks who tend to look for trigger warnings that they have permission and access to an exit, right? Um, but like one of the things we like in our research, like the Steppenwolf says, um, you know, different content triggers different people. So if you have questions, call us essentially. Right. So our, our sense of that is like, Hey, if you need to leave, of course you should take care of yourself. Here's, here's where you can go. Um, we do for sure think about, uh, and we've learned this lesson the hard way a couple of times. So for example, we went and did this Christmas show, um, up at so Abbott corporate. Laboratories. Oh my God. Um, it was a holiday party for their staff in the middle of the day. And we were like, okay, great. Christmas, holiday, feel-good stories. We can bring feel-good stories. Yeah, no problem. We can do that. So we show up, um, and there's a joke in Megan's story about... It's a feel-good story. It's, it's a, a great really feel-good feel good story. Good story. That but has one joke. For sure some vibrator there is one joke. No, no, no. It's not even vibrator stuff. There is a single. There is a single joke about a vibrator. Thank you. That is a feel good story. There's a single. The and joke and the joke didn't even come from me. It's a music. You know that Divinals track. Um, when I think about you, I touch myself like that. That like that line came on and played at one moment. So in every other audience, this joke kills, right? And in this um, lunch <laughs> setting, it's like crickets. We're like, okay, great, well, no vibrator you know, jokes. At, um, that, at that point, so at that point, you know, so many of our audiences were bars, theater, like artistic spaces, and not corporate spaces. I just did a, a keynote for a, a tech company a, a couple nights ago, and they sent me this list: like, please don't swear, 
please don't. And right away I was like, oh, fuck, that's going to that's gonna be a problem. But, but like just this whole list of do not do. And, yeah. You know, and then, again, contract with the audience. Yeah, so right? we do, we the, the technical pieces of it we do now are like we went out to um, Oregon and did a tour out in Oregon. And we're like, okay, so we're going to be in a very red space. Let's make sure that we're telling stories. Um, not that don't push an envelope, right? Because we certainly, like as an organization, we have a set of um, beliefs and values. Um and that but we did want to make sure that we aren't telling stories that make people shut down or alienate them in some way mm-hmm. uh, and I think we also like we're doing a lot of corporate work now and we are continually asking ourselves like what is the goal of this who is the audience where are what are we hate mm-hmm. to make assumptions but sometimes you have to work from an assumption place of like okay so what do we think these folks are probably walking into the room with? So we just did a workshop a couple of weeks ago around queer allyship. Uh, and when we were in conversation with the person who had hired us to do this, we sent them a handful of stories, one of which we wrote specifically for them. And she was like, well, actually, that story is a little too progressive for us. Right. So for our audience. Um, and so we we're like, OK, so no, you knowing that about your audience how about this one right which still has a similar set of questions in it around like what does it mean to show up for people um what does it mean when you fail how do you make amends for that how do you learn from that failure um but the vocabulary in it and the setting of it is a couple of steps back right Mm -hmm. um can i i I think there there's a like a an interesting tension between making a show that exists in our own spaces right like this is a second story show in a second story space and then making a show for someone else in their spaces um so so there's different questions to ask and that's something that i learned definitely through second story and then again like to apply back to the work that i do right now in the world there are things i can do in one of my books that i can't do when i write for the new york times Right. So so thinking about the difference between my own space and these other spaces that I'm entering and all this comes back to the contract with the audience. Right. So so to be thoughtful about who is that audience reading this and what are their needs, because the the intention with the work is to be heard and how can we we want and to to create connections. Yeah, we want to connect and we want to challenge people. But there's a difference between challenging in a way that's like, com- like l- l- let's let's all hold one another and figure this out together and challenge like. G- I'm coming for yeah, your yeah, yeah. cheeseburger, right? <laughs> Did that? Uh, it was in the in a law firm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gina, did you have a question? Thank you for asking. Um, So the thing that I love about 
the work that we do in corporate settings or universities or libraries or any other space that's not us being like, we're going to make the show for ourselves, um, is that it feels very much like using these assets that we have created to serve whatever the need is that this other organization or community has identified for themselves. So them saying, the, like this law firm saying, we want to have a conversation about what it means to be an ally to the LGBTQ community. And we're like, okay, cool. We have stories that can help us open up that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and our belief organizationally and individually is that stories open up access to people and relationships and conversations that data and PowerPoint and reading things on the internet and articles like just doesn't do. Uh, and so the ability to say, oh, so what's the conversation you want to have? Oh, you want to have a conversation like, oh, you're trying to bring in gender neutral bathrooms into your um, business, but you're getting a lot of pushback about why it's important. Okay, cool. We can bring in a couple of stories that are about somebody um, experience, like what their personal experience is of being misgendered in a bathroom, and then we can have that conversation. Um, and there's something about we as a as beings are built to tune into each other and so having somebody in front of you saying this was my experience and being able to ask them questions about it feels like suddenly it opens up people's understanding of things and so the balance in some ways is that we tend to the 99% of the work that we create, we are creating for our own performances. And then we're turning to somebody and they're, or they're coming to us and saying, hey, we want to have a conversation about this thing. Do you have a story for that? Um, and there's a, there, yes, we have a story for that. Uh, and if we don't have it um, already, then there, sometimes we do write them for people, um, like that one that was mm -hmm. ultimately named Too Progressive. Um, but it's still a story like we told it in our in our performances uh, and we will certainly pull it out again mm -hmm. but it feels like a um, I think as a society we we don't necessarily value the arts in the way that we could and though we might as individuals but like as a culture we don't think about the arts as um, an asset and so we've really been trying to say, okay, we have all of these assets. How can we deploy them for you mm -hmm. um, to the larger mm -hmm. world? Yeah. I, I think too, in, in thinking about that, it, it's more than just the organization. There are also all of these humans who, I mean, 20 years like that, who, who have touched it and connected with it in different ways. Like, um, like thinking about what the audience then wants to take back into their lives in different ways. How what what do our board members want to take back in different ways? Um, like like when I just sit and I think about some of the collaborators. I mean, we've worked with hundreds of storytellers over over twenty years, and so how are they taking this back into their work in in different ways? I think that's really exciting. Yeah. So thank you very much for being here. Um, let's eat more quiche and bacon and stuff. Yeah. Yay, thanks. If you enjoyed this look into Second Story's history and find yourself wanting more, please visit our website at secondstory.com slash art at home for information on virtual events, activities, and maybe even some quiche. 
The second story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, Skadden, Arp, Slate, Meager, and Flome, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this... This, this is the second, second Story Podcast.